0: Welcome to the Speechy Side Up podcast. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for coming. This podcast is produced every week for your enjoyment. You can also follow along on Instagram at Speechy Side Up. This episode is a little different than my other episodes as it's available for ASHA CEUs through Tassel Continuing Education. If you wanna earn ASHA CEUs, then stay on until the very end because that is where I provide information on how to register for automatic ASHA reporting. Before we get started, we have some information to share. Let's start with the learning outcomes. As a result of this activity, you will be able to identify at least three differences between spontaneity and fluency, describe at least three factors to consider when treating a new person who stutters, or PWS, and then you'll be able to define stuttering identity and stuttering gain and why those are important in stuttering therapy. Now let's talk about our financial and non-financial relationships. I have ownership interest in Speechy Side Up, LLC, and Tassel Learning, LLC, and I receive royalties from the LUNO's What to Do book series. I'm also a member of Asha's Special Interest Group 12. Dr. Christopher Constantino has the following relevant financial and non-financial relationships to disclose. He receives salary from Florida State University and royalties from the book Stammering Pride and Prejudice, published by j Press. His research is supported by awards from Florida State University, the National Stuttering Association, and the American Speech, Language, and Hearing Association. He has no non-financial relationships to disclose. And here's our agenda for today. I'm really excited for you guys to hear this one. So we're going to start with introductions and backgrounds. Then we'll talk about the difference between spontaneity and fluency. Then we'll talk about stuttering identity and stuttering gain and why both of those are important in therapy. Then we'll have a discussion about factors that you should consider when treating a new client with disfluent speech. And finally, we will talk about ways that clinicians can use critical thinking to provide evidence-based therapy when treating fluency. Now that we've got all that covered, let's get started. Hi, Dr. Constantino. Thank you so much for coming.
1: Thanks for having me on.
0: It's such a pleasure. I'm so grateful that Dr. Kelly Farquharson arranged this. She told me to reach out to you, and it's going to be such a pleasure to speak with you today. So can you talk to the listeners a little bit about yourself and your research before we get into our topics and questions?
1: Yeah, I'm happy to. I'm an assistant professor at Florida State University. I teach the classes on stuttering and on counseling, um, and my research is interested in the subjective experience of stuttering. So by that, what I mean is that I'm interested in how people who stutter experience their speech and in ways that we can improve th- this experience. Um, I'm, I'm a person who stutters myself, so I sort of have a vested interest in trying to improve the experience of speaking, and I don't think that necessarily means fluency. I think there's lots of uh, ways in which speech can be in, 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 enjoyable. I'm also a new dad. I had a, a son born in September, September and that's been a lot of fun
0: yes congratulations that's so exciting we were just talking about how my husband and I are expecting and you just had your first child so that's great yeah well I'm really excited to learn more about your research and your perspective on stuttering and just, you know, what the research shows. So let's talk about spontaneity versus fluency. Can you explain the differences between those?
1: Absolutely. So typically when we're talking about stuttering and we're talking about um, either trying to measure it in terms of severity or just in terms of what our treatment objectives B. often we're talking about fluency and that's often judged from the listener's perspective so if you're an SLP you might be counting people's stutters usually that's the right that's the outcome measure mm-hmm. and how I like to think about spontaneity is how, rather than how speech sounds to the listener, it's how speech feels to the speaker. And the way we define spontaneity is the amount of physical effort and mental attention that speech requires. So the more physical effort and mental attention, the less spontaneous and obviously the other way around. And what's, I think, really interesting about the, the idea is that, or actually I should back up a bit, um, a problem with fluency is that it doesn't often correlate to other treatment outcome measures, right? So it doesn't necessarily correlate with quality of life it doesn't necessarily correlate with the impact of the disorder on people's lives. So that's often measured by an instrument called the OASIS, the overall uh, assessment of the speaker's experience of stuttering, which basically measures the negative impact of stuttering on somebody's life. And what you often see in the research and, in clinical populations is that people can have really high frequencies of stuttering and very low impacts on their life. So they might stutter a lot, but it doesn't impact their life very much. You also will see people who stutter very little, but who have very high life impacts. So fluency doesn't do a good uh, job of discriminating between people who are greatly affected and people who aren't. And the really useful thing about spontaneity is that it significantly predicts life impact. So people who speak easily and with little attention to their speech often report less impact of stuttering on their life. And people for whom speech is difficult and demands a lot of attention, often report greater impact on their lives.
0: That's so fascinating. And I was trying to follow along and take copious notes did you say if there was any correlation between spontaneity and fluency? So let's say an outside listener notes the number of disfluencies by whatever measure they're using. And then someone, a person who stutters, they, maybe there's a checklist for the spontaneity piece. Is there a correlation between the two? Do they find that with like more disfluencies that there's a higher rate of like Um, difficulty with this, or I guess less difficulty with spontaneity. I hope I'm saying that correctly.
1: You are. So um, the answer is yes. And let me sort of add some nuance to this before I explain the correlation. Um, How I like to explain sort of comparing and contrasting spontaneity and fluency is that a person can be both spontaneous and fluent. So a typically fluent speaker who doesn't stutter never has to think about the physical production of their speech. They probably think about word choice and the language that they're gonna be using. They probably think about pragmatics. but they don't often think about you know, how to physically get the sound they wanna say out of their mouths. Those people would be both spontaneous and fluent. Somebody who really struggles with their stuttering would be both not spontaneous and not fluent. A person who stutters who is using fluency shaping strategies. So they're thinking about their speech all the time, but they're not producing any stuttering. That person would be f- 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 fluent, but not spontaneous. Um, you could also put somebody in that category who's really good at hiding their stuttering. We, we We often say that these people pass as fluent, so they're able to change their words around and manipulate what they're saying so that the person they're talking to never hears them uh, stuttering. That person would also be not spontaneous, but come across as fluent. Finally, if somebody has easy, effortless, small moments of stuttering s- uh, that they don't really have to think about or attend uh, to to do anything about, that person you could con- consider spontaneously disfluent. So. There should be a fairly strong correlation between spontaneity and fluency, because most people who are fluent will also be spontaneous, and many people who are disfluent will also be not particularly spontaneous. Um I think the interesting situations are when the two c- categories don't align. So when you have people who are effortfully fluent, so they're they're trying really hard to be f- fluent and people who are um, you could say effortlessly disfluent who uh Stutter, but don't have to really do anything to address it. You also asked how spontaneity is being measured. Um, it's with a questionnaire usually. So the person will be reporting on how much they're thinking about speaking, uh, how effortless speaking is, how much attention they have to put into getting past the moments of. Uh, uttering and that kind of thing.
0: Okay, thank you so much for illustrating that. It makes a lot of sense, and it's, it's interesting to know that there's like a strong correlation, but like you said, some of those outliers, those could be really fascinating. I appreciate you sharing that a checklist could be used for spontaneity. Do you have recommendations for evaluation, like assess or assessment tools for either spontaneity or fluency? I know you said the OASIS. Is that does that address both or is that specifically for like the spontaneity piece?
1: So the, the Oasis measures life impact. Um, So it's not really looking at physically what's happening, but globally um, how is uh, stuttering impacting this person's life. So I think as like a global measure of, impairment, it's a a good one. But if you're interested in measuring spontaneity, um, I think the only published questionnaire is one that my research group recently published in uh, JSLHR in a couple of months ago. It's an example of how you might try to measure it. It's not a, it's a standardized test yet. We're still working on the psychometrics and trying to improve its validity and accuracy. But I think it does give a good idea of if you were to design your own. If, what kind of questions you might want to ask.
0: Well, congratulations on developing that with your team. That's exciting. And I think it'll help a lot of people. And I appreciate you sharing where they can find that. I don't know. Did you share the name? I got the journal.
1: So so the name of the paper is The Subjective Experience of Stuttering Measuring Spontaneity. And if you just Google... Spontaneity, JSLHR. I'm sure it'll come up.
0: Okay, perfect. Thank you. So I know we're going to get into therapy for some other topics, but I'm curious: what does the differences between spontaneity and fluency mean for therapy? Like, what are the impacts? I know that you said fluency. You know, it's more about what the listener is hearing. Um, And it's so fascinating that you say that because it makes me almost think that as clinicians or people on the outside, we are kind of dictating the outcome for that patient. I think a lot of patients come to therapy because they also want to be more fluent, but it's almost like we're saying that you're fluent when we can't hear them anymore but I'm probably thinking too much into this. Anyway, so what does it mean for therapy and what are your recommendations? Like what should the clinician be focusing on?
1: I don't think you're thinking too much into it. I think you hit the the nail on the head that um, if what's really important for this speaker is making speech easier, then a lot of what we do in therapy, I think, is counterproductive. We might be making speech more fluent by teaching a lot of fluency-shaping strategies, but if those don't ever become automatic, and there's a lot of research that suggests that they probably don't, then the person's always having to think about speaking in order to uh achieve that fluency so their their speaking effort actually hasn't really changed right if they're speaking without doing anything and speaking is difficult because they stutter and then we teach them say how to talk s- Slower and use easy onsets. They're still having to think about speech. Their speaking effort hasn't really changed, and I think that helps explain why a lot of people who stutter don't use their techniques. They don't use them out inside of therapy, and I don't think it's a compliance issue. I just think they're not changing what's important, right? Speaking is still difficult. It still requires their attention. It still, frankly, is a drag to speak that way. And so I think when the focus is on making speech easier, taking away the barriers to spontaneous speech. So what is this person doing that is pre- 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 preventing them from speaking as easily as possible. Then when they make progress, the idea would be that they're not having to continuously think about the changes they have made. You're r- removing things from their s- speech, You're not adding things to their s- speech. So, Um, As a concrete example, let's say the person has a tendency to hold their breath when they have a stutter, so they have these really long blocks where they're not really making um, any sound. I think a traditional way of dealing with that would be something like an easy onset where you're sort of adding something to their speech, where instead of blocking, you're gonna have them purposely try to release a little bit of air, then begin their vocalization and then continue with the word. And you're gonna have them try to do that maybe at the initiation of every single phrase or every single Mm -hmm. sentence. Um, I don't think the idea of an easy onset is is a is a bad one right and in in order to vocalize, we have to have airflow we can't be holding our breath but i think the way it's executed can be problematic when the speaker thinks this is something i have to do in addition Whereas if you help them realize what they're already doing, so they're holding their breath, they're, they're actively holding their breath when they feel a, a moment of stuttering happening, if you can help them break up that behavior pattern, and then when they stop holding their breath, you have the same effect as an easy onset. Right, they're getting air flow in vocalization, but they're not having to think about it. So I think uh, the process takes longer because you're breaking up sort of in, ingrained behavior patterns, but the results should be should be uh, 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 more robust.
0: Wow, that is really fascinating and I feel like that's a trend across our field in different areas where we've had these quick fixes for a long time and now we're realizing that they're not sustainable or they're not generalizable so looking at strategies that take longer are harder to teach but then they'll have more lasting you know outcomes. Um, It also sounds like, and I know that a big interest of yours is counseling, that on the clinician's part, we have to adopt more of, like, a counseling piece, and again, this is, like, a trend that we're seeing across the field, whether it's autism, um, acceptance over, like, more of being accepting, right? So um, it's just really interesting, and I appreciate you sharing that.
1: Yeah, I think that's absolutely right that um, one of the things I think we butt up against, and it doesn't really matter what area of the field you're in, is that a lot of the communication disorders that we're dealing with don't necessarily go away so if you have autism you're going to have autism for the rest of your life if you have a stutter you're likely going to have a stutter for the rest of your life Um, same thing with, with acquired disorders so if you have dysarthria or if you of aphasia a lot of these become parts of your way of speaking your way of interacting and the I think we are well aware that society doesn't it, 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 it tolerate difference very well so as a field even trying to our best to alleviate that difference but when the difference is part of the person when it's part of who they are um i think we have to question whether well we have to be be honest whether we can alleviate it and i think we have to question even whether we should alleviate it and i think in terms of stuttering it's very clear that if you stutter past a certain age, likely you're gonna to continue to stutter the rest of your life. So you can choose to you know, fight against it forever or do your best to fit it into your identity, to fit it into who you are and learn to speak as easily as possible. Even if that means you're still gonna have some disfluencies in your speech.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Thank you. I was thinking that I imagine this is going to probably looks different for children versus adults. And I think there's probably a point in time like you're saying where the person who stutters, they have to kind of come to that realization and decide what's going to be best for them long term, but as a child, you have the parents that are really invo- involved and I think teaching them the difference between spontaneity and fluency would be really vital for therapy as well.
1: Right. I, it, I think a lot of times when we're working with children, a lot of times the parents you, you need more therapy than the kids do, right? Mm-hmm. Like we really have to get them. So, so we talk about acceptance um, from the person with the, Uh, communication disorders point of view, but I think uh, really the hard work is getting the parents to accept um, who their their child is and what uh, their speech and their uh, language abilities will be like.
0: Yeah, that's such a great point. Thank you so much. I could probably talk about this topic forever, but let's talk about stuttering identity. How would you define it and why is it important in stuttering therapy?
1: Yeah, so we just sort of touched on this briefly um, when we were talking about the permanence of different communication disorders. Um, So there's lots of different parts to our identities, right? We have our race, our nationality, our ethnicity, religion, gender, sexuality, etc. Um, but there's also a disabled I identity. So uh, people with disabilities are categorized a certain way by. By other people in society, um, and generally this is in a in a negative way, right? There's a lot of discrimination against people with disabilities. Um, but what's what's encouraging is that the research on identity, and this goes into a lot of research in racial identity and in gendered identity, um, it shows that even if you have an identity that it carries a lot of stigma, if you yourself have a high positive regard for that identity, then that identity can give you psychological benefits. So um, as an example, let's let's say you are a uh, uh, racial minority and um, whatever race you happen to be is one that is discriminated against in society if you personally think very highly of being whatever race you are, then when your race is brought up or pointed out, or you're just in a situation where your race is um, brought to your attention. So maybe you're just hanging out with a bunch of people who are of a, similar race generally what the research has found is that you experience a psychological boost so you feel good about yourself um i think the translation to disability and to communication disorders is that in addition to Working on the physical mechanics of speech and language, that the better we can help people embrace their their identities as being a person who uh, your daughters or a person with autism or what have you, that the healthier that person will you be. and po intentionally, um not only will they be healthier, but they'll also but they'll actually have a, a psychological boost, right, when they're with say other people who daughter or with other people who have autism. Um it this is potentially something that could improve the quality of life of people with various disorders.
0: That makes a lot of sense. And as you were speaking, I was definitely thinking of different groups. And I think that community is probably very important in this aspect, knowing that other people are like you, being able to relate to them. I think that's why Facebook groups can be so popular when you're not able to be around you know, people like you. Um, so it'd be interesting for therapy to be integrating something like that. I know that like some of our local universities, they'll have stuttering groups where they meet once a month and that's really powerful. But, um, you know even doing group therapy could be beneficial. Right.
1: Yeah, I think group therapy is always a great idea. And what, so what can happen is that you can't really have a culture by yourself, right? Culture requires other people. And so when you start forming these groups, whether they're local or national or international, you begin to develop a a stuttering culture or an autism culture, or a what have you culture. And that can add a lot of like, texture to your life and provide opportunities that you wouldn't have had friends who you wouldn't have met. And it can turn what society sees as a, as a bad thing into something that's potentially good.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. It it goes, I mean, I'm really big into the self-help stuff and it talks, you know, they talk a lot about your perspective, just change your perspective. And so like in this case, the person who stutters would be changing their perspective by surrounding themselves with people more like them. Um, But I still think that society and as therapists, we need to do a better job at acceptance as well. Um, Mm -hmm. But I love the idea that they can, boost their self-esteem, have a healthier quality of life by finding that community. Yeah. So what about stuttering gain? What is that and why is it important for stuttering therapy?
1: So we have known for decades that when someone tries, let me read, phrase that. The less someone tries not to stutter, the easier stuttering is. Um, A lot of the struggle behavior that we see in stuttering is the person doing their best to try to not stutter. And I think a lot of therapists understand this and do their best to help their clients stutter s- uh, openly and to try to stutter s- uh, as easily as possible. However, I think that's really, really hard. Right? Um, stuttering isn't necessarily always pleasant. People get teased and made fun of. For it, and so when 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 I'm working with my clients, I think that something I try to emphasize is that it's easier for people to let themselves daughter when they when they have a reason to your daughter and that reason is their stuttering gain. So I define stuttering gain as any experience that is positive that you wouldn't have if you were a fluent speaker. So it's an experience that is unique to your identity as a person who uh, your daughters and that adds to your life um so i can't tell you what somebody else's so, so, your daughtering gain would be but i can um give examples from my own life i think that probably my biggest um gain from stuttering is that I think it, it introduces a level of vulnerability into every conversation that often leads to intimacy but between myself and the person I'm speaking to. Stuttering can be an un settling experience, basically how people often describe it. It's like you're temporarily out of control of your our articulators. So you're talking and then all of a sudden something happens and the person you're speaking to witnesses you in an out-of-control moment. That's a very vulnerable place to be. And the effect of that is that it makes it really hard to put up a facade to um, keep barriers up. It makes it so that I'm forced to be vulnerable and, almost every speaking situation I enter into, I think that that very quickly leads to more intimate and uh, deeper conversations with people. Um, Oftentimes when we're talking, we're really trying our best to to avoid communicating, right? We're just asking somebody how they're doing, but we don't really care how they're doing. We're just sort of going through the motions of uh, conversational changes. And so when I stutter, it sort of throws a wrench in all of that, right? It forces the person I'm talking to, to uh, deal with me as a complicated human being on a different level and so um i think that's an example of something i would lose if i were speaking fluently all the time um perhaps somebody who is listening also uh, his daughters maybe they can't relate to that but i would encourage them to think about in their own speech What experiences do they have day in and day out that they wouldn't have if they didn't uh, stutter?
0: Yeah, that's a really good, insightful question. I find personally, I'm not a person who stutters, um, but when I have bad days, I feel like I'm constantly apologizing to the person. So I'm curious, as to, you know, I'm I'm sure, I don't know, maybe this has always been, this realization has always been like natural for you, or maybe it took something to realize like your stuttering gain. I'm just curious how a therapist would approach a client about stuttering gain to help them like realize what theirs is.
1: Yeah, I think it has to be gentle, but Her assistant, right? So I used to work with a lot of middle schoolers. And um, when we'd be talking about uh, stuttering, most of them really just wanted to stop uh, stuttering, right? They just wanted to be fluent speakers. but un- unfortunately, I couldn't offer them that, right? Like I'd, I don't have a magic pill to make them f- fluent. So we had to have honest conversations about, um, you know, what do you imagine it would be like to stutter when you're in college or when you have a job or when you're married or talking to your children And then so I think slowly you help them get used to the idea that um, this is a part of them that they'll be dealing with probably for the rest of their life. And um, once they sort of accept that and come to terms with it I think that it makes sense to try to find out okay you're going to be stuck uh, stuttering the rest of your life is there anything good about that right can can we think about anything good that might come of that and it doesn't they don't have to have an answer right away because they probably won't it'll it'll probably take them take them a lot of ruminating over it um the point really isn't to have an answer it's, it's more the process of thinking about what your stuttering does in a conversation right because when you understand that you can speak and you can stutter and the uh, guy doesn't fall down, then they begin to let themselves uh, stutter easier. And even if they never find an answer, if they're letting themselves stutter easier, then the exercise was a success.
0: Okay, that makes sense. And that actually was going to lead into my next question I just started thinking does stuttering gain have to be specific to stuttering or could it be something else that they're very confident about or they identify with maybe they're a good like basketball player maybe they are really funny can it be something else that just boosts their confidence or do they have it doesn't have to be specific to stuttering because when they have those stuttering moments they would be very cognizant of those
1: so yeah, I, I, I think the the idea is that um, in therapy we're going to be trying our best to help them stutter openly, and so if there's if there's a something that makes that easier, if there's a reason to uh, daughter openly, then that process isn't so difficult. Um, I think it's important that they see them themselves as a full person. So whether that's their sense of humor or their basketball skills or what have you, um, it's important that they don't lose sight of those talents just because they have this other thing that they're dealing with. Um, But I wouldn't call that part of uh, stuttering gain.
0: Okay. Thank you for clarifying that. So I'd like to ask, how should clinicians think critically in stuttering therapy? I know we talked a lot about that just based on some of the different terminology that you brought up, but is there anything else that you wanted to share?
1: Yeah, I think um, I want to just return to what we were talking about at the way beginning of our conversation about the process of therapy, thinking about it as being reductive and not additive, um, that when you're thinking about how your clients are speaking, think think about stuttering as a... Reaction to, to to a feeling, so we described that feeling earlier as being being one of loss of control, right? So, um, if you think about what your clients are doing when they're stuttering, uh, as doing their best to try to postpone that feeling, to to avoid that feeling, to control that feeling, right, then you start to understand that much of what you're seeing when they're duttering has a purpose. So for example, if they're repeating words a lot or, or repeating phrases a lot. So let's say they want to say, I want to go to this uh, door and they're going to stutter on the words uh, door and they keep on going. I want to go to the, I want to go to the, um, I want to go to the, um, I want to go to the store, um, right? That, that phrase repetition, I want to go, I want to go, I want to go. That's, not just an automatic thing that happens, right? They're, they're doing that for a purpose. And that purpose is they think if they try to say the word s, s, uh, door, they're gonna get duck uh, on it. And they could be right, right? But they have to learn to deal with that feeling. So instead of say, adding something to their speech, we wanna take away that phrase repetition. So we'll practice just entering into the moment of stuttering. Say the word door, even though you think you're gonna get stuck on it. Then when they do, They'll probably get stuck on it. And then we deal with whatever they're doing when they're stuck. So maybe they're blocking really hard and they're not getting any um, airflow. Then we have to help them to get airflow. So they have to make some sort of a sound. And perhaps after a while they're able to get um, airflow. Perhaps it's not the right sound that they that they want to say. So instead of saying, I want to go to the store, they end up with, I want to go to the uh, 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 store. Then we want to take out that a uh, uh sound. So you're constantly sort of like chiseling away at what your client is doing to almost like you're trying to get to the pure moment of stuttering. Uh, I don't really know if that exists, right? I don't, that's just a uh, therapeutic way of thinking about it. Um, but instead of, instead of giving your client tech techniques to practice, think, think about it as, Chiseling away at all the things that they're doing that aren't simply it's saying the word that they want to say.
0: That makes a lot of sense. Thank you for illustrating that. So we have a lot of school based SLPs that listen to this, you know, some clinicians in the medical setting as well. And they're probably thinking, this is fantastic. Now, how do I put this into practice by writing goals? Do you have any goal suggestions?
1: Yeah. Um, so let's say your client – so pick any behavior that your client could be doing. Let's say that they insert a sound like we were just talking about. So before they stutter, they say, uh, 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 right? Um, then your goal could be – Uh, Chris will reduce use of um, the uh sound for moments of uh, stuttering by uh, stuttering on the sound of the word that he wants to say in eight out of 10 opportunities over three consecutive sessions or you know something like that so you're going to give what the client's doing so they could be using interjections a lot like um, 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 um. they might be using a s- uh, darter sound like uh they could be blocking if they're blocking perhaps we want to substitute that with just getting air or just making a sound. So give the behavior that they're doing, give what it would look like when they don't do that behavior. And then this, the set a criteria. Um, so if they have these sort of run-on repetitions, let's say they go <laughs> door. So we want them to be able to uh, move on from that chugging repetition into the rest of the uh, of the word. So your behavior that you want them to stop is that repetition, and a behavior that would um, contraindicate that repetition could be a. Prolongation on the next sound in the word. So if they're repeating the S in s'dor, we want them to move through that word. So try to get to the T. So s'dor would be the not the correct way to do it because you know they're just trying to break up an old behavior. There really isn't any right or wrong here. So you could say that Chris, instead of um, repeating the first sound of, of the word will um, prolong the second sound in the word in eight out of 10 opportunities, blah, blah, blah. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, it does. And um, I have had another guest on here, who, you know, her area of expertise is fluency as well. It's a different outlook, but, you know, you're working on the current research, whereas this has been a clinician for a very long time. And one of the things that she was saying was like, not to use percentages, but my guess is because they were talking about those fluency techniques. And you were saying that, you know, we don't, they're not, it's not consistent. We don't see it being used across the lifespan. So would that be the reason why, they were probably saying, like, don't use percentages in that case. Whereas with this, when you're reducing the behavior, you probably will see a decrease um, and you can apply percentages there.
1: Right. So I would imagine they were talking about don't use like a percentage of fluency, right? So don't like say, person will be 5% fluent during conversation 10 times or, you know, something like that and i would say that's exactly right um you will notice that i didn't bring up fluency at all yeah in talking about uh uh the goals um fluency has to do with whether or not a person has a a moment of stuttering, and largely that's outside of their control So that's highly, highly variable. It goes up and down. Um, Whereas what I'm trying to encourage clinicians to think about isn't if they stutter, but what they do when they uh, stutter. So don't worry about how often they are doing it. I wouldn't try to measure that um, for a for a therapy goal. You might have to try to measure that for, um, say, a evaluation or something like that, where you're qualifying them for therapy. But in terms of therapy goals, think about how they're reacting to the moments of stuttering when they happen, because they do have con over that, you can always substitute one behavior for another. There aren't any stuttering behaviors that are, you know, um, mandatory for their speaking pattern. Everything is up for grabs. Everything can be altered. Um, they can't necessarily control t- 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 when and if they have a moment of. S- s- stuttering but they can always stutter differently than they are and so if your therapy is moving them in the direction that when they do stutter it's easier then I think that's wonderful progress
0: amazing thank you so much for explaining that This is really, really great. Um, Was there anything that you wanted to talk about that we didn't touch on? Anything about your current research before we wrap up?
1: Um, I think we covered almost everything. So my uh, current research is um, I'm looking at uh, stuttering identity, trying to tease apart whether there are people who, um have positive identities surrounding their stuttering uh, and if it does grant the well-being benefits that we see in other forms of identity i'm looking at spontaneity and trying to improve how to measure it and just some of my other work is looking at um something called the disability paradox. So which is basically that when you look at the quality of life of people with disabilities, often it's about the same as the quality of life as uh, able-bodied people. And oftentimes, if you were to ask able-bodied people... Um, to pre- predict the quality of life if you were to have a certain kind of condition. They predict it to be way lower than people with that kind addition condition actually report. So in, in some ways, it's a measure of uh, prejudice within society towards people with that condition. And so I'm interested in whether that exists in stuttering, um, whether that prejudice towards the expecting a much lower quality of life than people who stutter actually report.
0: Wow, that's really interesting. So yeah, you're gonna look at specific, not other disabilities, but stuttering specific, right? Right, yeah. Okay, wow, very cool. Well, thank you so much. Um, I usually ask my guests like, where can everybody find and connect with you? And I know Dr. Farquharson, she has an Instagram. Um, If people wanna look into your research or learn more about you, where can they go?
1: Um, Unfortunately, I am not very present on social media. Um, but I do have an email that I check often um, so they can feel you free to email me. Um, my email is c-o-n-s-t-a-n-t-i-n-o at fsu.edu.
0: Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that. Well, it's been such a pleasure, Dr. Constantino. Thank you so much again for joining us. And I know people are going to love this episode.
1: Thank you for having me on.
0: All right. Until next time. Guess what? This episode is worth 0.1 ASHA CEUs. However, listening to this pod course does not automatically guarantee ASHA CEUs or a certificate. If you want to earn ASHA CEUs for this pod course, please visit tasseltogether.com to create a free account, pick a membership level, and access the course materials. Tassel will automatically submit your course participation to ASHA once the course requirements are met. Remember to check the course details section under each course on the website for completion deadlines. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this pod course.